Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of the Messenger Pigeon Show. My name is Roman, and together with my co-host, John Bobio, we'll be discussing philosopher Schlebo-Jezek's predictions for the future of humanities, political systems, psychosocial landscapes, technology, and cultures in his newest book, Pandemic, COVID-19 Shakes the World. For those of you who don't know who Schlebo-Jezek is, He's something like the crazy philosophy or political science professor, you know, the one who everyone loves, but nobody really takes seriously. Although sometimes you think that maybe, just maybe, they should. And he's also a celebrity. In fact, he's known as the most dangerous philosopher of the West, and his predictions we'll be discussing will soon make it clear why. Philosophy as a discipline is increasingly becoming integrated as a sort of unit or sub-theme into other humanities and social sciences. Standalone philosophers are becoming something of a rarity, and Zizek's philosophy, which mixes the Marxist dialect, Hegelian metaphysics, and Lacanian psychoanalysis, is a truly unique perspective, a real oddity, in fact. And he has his fair share of critics, yet his imagination, curiosity, passion, and often harrowing yet convincing predictions have made him famous. His predictions for how the pandemic will affect humanity would have sounded like a script of a sci-fi movie just a couple months ago. Yet in today's world, many of his arguments ring true in a way that perhaps never have before. Even for those who are skeptical of Zizek's philosophy, it's necessary to reckon with the possibility of what might come to be known as the Zizekian future. Not just because of the COVID pandemic, but because evidence suggests that the COVID-19 pandemic is just a taste of what might come. In the Arctic, climate change is causing ancient pathogens to resurface from permafrost. Development into previously wild areas means that humans will come into contact with potentially virus-carrying wildlife more often. And like we've seen with the COVID-19 pandemic, globalization means that viruses can spread all over the world right under our noses before governments even put restrictions in place. So what is the Zizekian future like? Well, our philosopher predicts that mass surveillance will end democracy. The world's states will have to be choose between tight social control that will crush human freedom and the human spirit and the inhumanity of allowing some people to die in order to allow the rest of us to live on as normal. Moving human interaction online will fundamentally change who we are as a species and how we relate to others. Divisions of class and possibly nationality, race, and ethnicity will become even more pronounced and manifest in new ways than before. Dystopian, to say the least. But is this just the stuff of a philosopher's nightmare? At the very least, it's worth a discussion. It's okay to be down sometimes Why, I guess it's true Well, there's nothing as blue as melting grass But honey, now so are you
It's okay to be lost sometimes. Why I know it's true. The sun's so high and the December sky, and honey, now so are you. That was a song by me and Roman's close friend, John Poston of the up and coming band, Second Valley. Uh, Hope you enjoyed. Welcome to the first episode of Getting High on Psychedelics with John and Roman. Just kidding. (laughs) We haven't decided on a name yet, but welcome to my podcast. Uh, I'm Roman, a student at the University of Belgrano in Argentina, studying international relations, and my co-host, John my name's John, and um, I didn't really prepare an introduction, but I go to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and I'm a student okay. with, with absolutely no um, expertise in any field. I think what's really scary about his prediction is the view of technology and big government teaming together to take away people's privacy. I think his predictions on the economy, it's like, okay, it's like, is there really gonna be a post-capitalist world order just because of, I don't know, there might be. Like in Argentina, the government's been nationalizing businesses, um, taking, the, the argument is that, well, trying to nationalize businesses and the argument is that since the government's helping out these businesses, giving them loans during a time of economic crisis. The money's from the government and their state businesses now. And you see in the news, like pretty much every major news channel has at least touched on the idea that authoritarian states have an edge combating the COVID, even if not explicitly, but that's what you see is states like China, um, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong, the more authoritarian the nature of the state, it's true. Yeah. So I think, well, I think what he's talking about is how like coronavirus has separated the world into two separate classes because you've got this one class that's gonna have to go outside and have to keep working, and one class that's basically, I mean, like there, there's the people are talking about the possibility of just like remote work becoming like the new norm. I don't think it. As long as the pandemic continues, it's kind of true. Because even though, even if you would like to go work in person, there's, um, I mean, it's just not, it's just not going to happen if it can be avoided. Yeah, dude, I completely agree with you. And I don't know how long this could last, but this could become the new normal, mm-hmm. no doubt. I mean, people are talking about like, uh, I see, I see articles about how this is going to change school. Like, why can't high school have and there's there's benefits to that. Uh, we're gonna make life more flexible for some students, but it's still this separation of society. It's like they're the outsiders, they're the insiders. Oh, I'm like like imagine like uh, I, I don't know like a, a guy like coming home, um, bringing home his girlfriend to his parents, and then afterwards the parent leaves and she's like, hey hey son, isn't that? I think I think that girl's a well an outsider. Are, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that's a good point that you make there. 
Oh gosh. The, we're living, and what I found really interesting building onto that was his idea that the outsiders are actually going to have an easier time coping because they're the ones who are going to see the virus in person. Yeah. The other thing I think, though, is that whoever the, if say the insiders, for example, I think they, those are people that would, um, like those people are going to long for the outside. They're going to want to go outside. So instead of holding contempt for the outsiders, they're going to wish that they were one of them, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know so much about that part because people are still going to go outside to like walk and run and stuff. What, yeah, that's kind of what I'm talking about. You think that is going to feed into the separation? I also think Slavoj, even though he didn't mention it specifically, I don't know if he mentioned it specifically in his book, neither of us have read the whole book yet, but it, I, I mean, people are saying, epidemiologists are saying theoretically this is going to be one of the less dangerous pandemics that's going to be seen in this century. Exactly. The biggest challenge to, well, the challenge to democracy is definitely there, but more, more directly than that is the challenge to globalization. So what Slavogis is talking about is the breakdown of the capitalist democratic model where you have private businesses doing their thing and the state doing their thing, where the pandemic has sort of just gotten all muddled. Mm. And I think some of the same um, like urges to nationalize businesses that you're seeing in Argentina that's, there's also articles in US, U.S. journals, U.S. articles coming out. Because, um, I mean, why shouldn't, why shouldn't they be nationalized? If it's getting so much state money, then shouldn't it be accountable to the government? But is that going to be the end of free enterprise? Is that going to be uh, the end of the system? Well, he, he's a philosopher. He's not a pundit. So he's talking about systemic change. And there's, there's always been this idea in political philosophy that um, to have a free society, you also need private property. It's one of the natural rights of man. But so with government and, bit, and, a few, and the fewer small businesses taking up more and more control of the economy, it's, it's just naturally harder for small businesses to compete. I think what- But uh, you could also say that the government has teamed up with small businesses to a certain extent by providing all of their you know, they help them not lay off workers. They they provide a lot of support for them too. That's that if the government's providing money, businesses then those businesses should be state owned. Then, if this changes the corporate strategy of executives in the future, it's the small businesses who are going to have less flexibility to change. Who are going to have to rely more on governments. Oh shit! You're right. Or hopefully we find some way to implement, if capitalism is doomed, we find ways to implement a truly social democratic or democratic socialist society other than the central planning system. But the system that's- But but how do you think that could be possible? I mean, there's, 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 the classic, the classic argument that, you know, okay, you vote with your money, right? Yes. Social democracy could be a form of capitalism if people voted that way. Well, even if, if, if people, oh, hold on, let me take a step back. I think 
Well, Slavon is interesting because he makes predictions about the end of the system, but he doesn't really predict what the system will look like in the future. Social, he, so Slavaj views, definitely views social democracy as just a form of capitalism. It's just capitalism, but with more state intervention and more state welfare. I think, but to have a truly democratic socialist society, it would have to be workers having more of a direct ownership of their businesses. So mm. one way to do it would be workers with um, equity compensation. Yeah, and this is actually a good idea work, uh, with stock ownership programs. So the, more, the longer you work for a company, the more stock you own. There are companies that are experimenting with that. And from what I've heard, it's been successful. Yeah. But that is an interesting way of looking at it. Oh, I want to go back to talk about the psychological aspect, though, of, of the, the COVID being more frightening when you don't see it. Okay. Well, as how he talked, how um, Slavoj talked about mass, massive shifts in the collective psychological mood. I think, well, like we, 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 we're seeing it right now, how quickly social distancing in the U.S., from what, from what, for what I understand, I'm in Argentina right now, but apparently people are just abandoning it in the U.S. Is that right, John? Sorry, what are they abandoning exactly? The coronavirus? So, like the idea of social distancing, wearing masks. Yeah, no, they actually, yeah, it's pretty much forgotten about for a little, for now. Masks are still popular. That's, that's, that's incredible to me. That's incredible. How did, so like what, 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 Argentina is doing it really strictly. Argentina's got like legal restrictions in place. What, what is it like in the U.S.? Well, the only thing that changed was the media's attitude. So all you heard for weeks was coronavirus. Now all you hear, hear, hear for weeks is riots and looting. So, so I like, mean, it's, you're, it's our information that's changed and the information that's being given to us. So like if you were to go out into the park, would you, would you wear a mask? Like would, it, would everyone be wearing masks? Absolutely not. You have the choice to wear a mask if you're going to a business or like a, a crowded place. Um, but, you know, it's like 50-50 whether people actually are wearing masks outside right now or not. Oh, but if, oh. you're in, if you're outside, definitely not. Uh, this is only if you're walking into a business, pretty much. My opinion is definitely wear masks. You know why? Because people, if you don't wear masks and you're out in the park having a nice day, you're going to forget. And you're going to like go and interact with people close up. Yeah, that's just not how it is here at all. At least, at least, at least like have the mask in your pocket because you see the mask. You you don't wear the mask for other people. Oh no, sorry. You you wear the mask for other people. The mask statistically actually doesn't prevent you from getting coronavirus if if, if you have coronavirus. Right. So it's um, a, like a prisoner's dilemma scenario. There, it's like the mask is only good if everyone's wearing it. So if, I feel like if some people stop wearing the mask, then the whole whole of society is just going to stop wearing masks. Yeah, I mean, people have compared it to, like, wearing pants, where, like, it's, there's no rule that you have to wear pants, but, like, you just, you know, if you, you should wear pants, you should wear a mask. Um, but I, I agree that unless we have everyone adopting masks, I think it will fade out of style. Because right now, it's, it's the style thing more than anything. Mm -hmm. I, I, think, I think he touched on something. I'm not sure that his argument relies solely on the media, though, because... John, you tend to emphasize the, the role of the media in, in, in collective behavior, but there's also person-to-person okay. -person interactions. 
I think because the world is so globalized now, there is one theory that you're connected to everyone in the world through six, um, six, or, six or less links. So you know someone who knows someone who knows someone, and, and, and through that logic, you're connected to everyone in the world. So I'm wondering, yeah. now that people, the, the, I mean, the way we communicate that has changed so that we're, we're not communicating with people who are geographically closer to us, we're communicating with those who are personally close to us, no matter where in the world they are. And it's right. sort of an interesting shift because it's like, wow, like the, 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 the people who, who affect your mood, who, who you actually talk to don't necessarily have to be geographic that asshole who you know like is an asshole watching porn on the bus isn't isn't going to be the one affecting your mood anymore it's going to be your cousin in tokyo or italy or whatever dude i'm really glad you pointed that out because i do think that's one of the things that's um really facing political discourse in the united states right now no, is that people it's are that interactions are with people well people now we're interacting with people who affect us more more closely you know if like someone flips you off in the uh in the freeway it's like okay like uh but now like that's that's not the nature of our interaction of our daily interaction anymore yeah i i completely agree and i think that's one of the problems we face is that um our experiences vary so much geographically that my experience i i used to be able to find common ground with someone who I interacted with that lived near me, but now how do I find common ground with someone that I'm interacting with on a daily basis, but they have completely different life experiences from me because they live in a completely different place. And I feel like that makes it harder for us to have conversations. Let's also go back and talk about um, the idea of how, how surveillance threatens democracy, because it's, it's not really a clear link. You know, you can, you can have, surveillance theoretically and still be a perfectly free society the first the, you know the first liberal philosophers um you know designing envisioning what modern democracy would be didn't really have a way to deal with the problem of the 21st century which is the surveillance state and big technology teaming up with government to spawn so there's also you could argue that democracy is not really as you know, democracy, as political scientists know it, consider it, isn't really at risk because, hey, if you have nothing to worry about, you have nothing to fear with surveillance. I mean, I mean, surveillance has been happening long before COVID, the Patriot Act, and, and nobody cared. You don't, you don't really have a mass, you know, other than people in circles uh, such as our circles, John, who, who, see, who see this as a big issue. There's like the Edward Snowden movie that's like, ah, it's a cool movie that everyone's seen, but like nobody actually takes that guy seriously. So can you walk me through the exact link between the surveillance state and the threat to democracy? Well, well that, that's the thing. It's, it's hypothetical. Like nobody, nobody knows what the link is. It's all, it's all supposed. You know, it's, it's, it, it opens the door. I mean, Slavoj Zizek argues that surveillance directly destroys democracy. But, but, but for an average, a face value that's not really uh, a self-evident self statement. 
Well, to me, the surveillance affects um, who has the power because whoever has control of the surveillance has control of an enormous amount of information that can be wielded to their benefit. Um, so really the surveillance is, is giving someone this, this centralized power, um, even more power than they previously had, which that to me is the threat to democracy. I mean, I mean, his article, he's, he's pretty, he's, well, he's his clearest lavage ever is. He, his, his view is basically democracy is already doomed and th this kind of surveillance will be necessary to save ma mankind. We're not going to have the, the, the same open societies. I, I really hope he's wrong. I mean. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to refute what he says. It's it's hard to refute, but though, but also there's like some some like part of me that's like nah, like it's it's an it's an overreaction. He's, he's a philosopher. I mean, yeah. it, it depends on if, if your view is or, okay. I'm gonna trust the science. Uh, I'm gonna trust the, what the science is, and the science is telling us we're gonna have much more from our natural disasters, both because of climate change and because of the you know, uh, increased prevalence of pandemics. I don't think. I don't really think governments are going to learn their lesson. I think the focus now is to reopen the economy as quickly as possible, but and and talk about and and talking about ways to combat this pandemic. But no, nobody's really talked about combating the future pandemics because this 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 according to what um, you know world leading epidemiologists say isn't the worst. Well, whatever happens during this pandemic is going to become the playbook for all future pandemics. But, but will, will people, will governments actually listen to the scientists and put precautions in place and really rush back to opening the economy and leave it open? Okay, so, so, so there's three scenarios here. One is that what I just described. Governments rush to reopen economies as quickly as possible. The second is that... Um, for some reason, this one pandemic, COVID, lasts years and years and years. We're already, we're already seeing the effects on democracy uh, in Balkans, in Argentina, in various other parts of the world, and especially with the influence of China and Southeast Asia, um, their influence being expanded. I mean, more of this would be devastating based on what's going on. So, First scenario, we rush to open the economy, all right? We might, um, the question is, will governments learn the right lesson? I think it, it definitely does impact the way governments are gonna approach national security. I think, I think there is a definite expansion in the surveillance state, but will they actually use that to do, to do good or will they use that for special interests and for other interests? Or will there be some other measures in place, improving health, that um, investing in, in better technology to actually prevent pandemics in the future? Yeah, I mean, whenever I hear something like that from my fairly conservative viewpoint, I mean, I always lean towards the abuse side of the spectrum. Like, I don't see a way that the few with the power wouldn't abuse it for their special for their own interests. I don't I don't believe the fact that politicians are public servants, at least in the current system. 
And so I don't believe the fact that they'll use it only for public good. I mean, the thing is that like, most people are okay with it. it was, uh, They're okay with the abuse as long as they do the good, the good things along with it? I don't think, I, I, don't, I haven't looked at the statistics, but I don't think there's mass outrage against the Patriot Act. It's something, it's something that gets brought up uh, like every once in a once in a Yeah, you'd be right about that. And especially now with the, with the pandemic, there's, uh, there was an article in The Atlantic. It's, what, what, what's really scary is how it's changed opinion. I think, of course, of course there is a case for it in times, of the, in times of the pandemic, but nobody's talking about putting mechanisms in place so that these surveillance measures have, have, a, have an expiration date. I, I, I would, I mean, I would support increasing surveillance, you know, contact tracing, all that, as long as this has an expiration date, but that's just not the case. And I think that it's going to get solid, solidified into place, this institutional relationship you see with companies like Google and companies, um, well, the government. Well, the fact is that the surveillance state is the best possible solution for a lot of, of issues. For example, combating terrorism, combating pandemics like the surveillance state is the best solution but what people don't realize is the trade-off we're giving for that solution i think people should focus more on the trade-offs instead of the individual solutions um, because some say that it's better to trade not having the surveillance state in order to preserve our individual freedoms i don't i don't think we're ever going to have an orwellian future but i do think we will have a brave new world future where People are going to become so distracted by entertainment. People are going to be so distracted by what's on our screen that we don't actually think of what's missing um, from the old way, from interacting, interacting in person. It's, you know, no matter how much I want to, I, I just don't feel... Um, well, that's a depressing thought. They're never going to be able to go into the woods and, like, feel the same, like, Joy and like wonder. I well, going into the woods is fine. That's not the problem because it's 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 the woods. It's a solitary environment. But you're more concerned about human interaction. Okay, all right. I, I, well, look at look at the Argentine model where there was there's a hard lockdown. There's still a hard lockdown. A lot of businesses are going out of business. It, it degrades it degrades the kind of civil society that's traditionally been the basis for strong democracies. I'm, I'm curious to know. If democracy can, um, it, it, it not not that well. Now moving away from the structural argument, if if people we've already seen increased polarization all across the Western world, um, increase in fake news does, and I think the pandemic makes us all the more vulnerable to that. How much harder it is to have. A deep conversation, a really deep, innovative conversation um, over text message, over social media. Me, hopefully, social media will change to be more conducive to this. We're seeing some example of, of this being successful uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement. And then it's really become a, a worldwide, worldwide movement. But it's, my fear is that it, it, it's going to have to think, Pro, but what can't happen is people can't get into the habit of waiting for breaking points to be to become active in the system. It can't be okay. Like 
like like think about the, the, the how quickly the mood shifted in the u.s from okay stay at home stay at home stay at home to like everyone going out and protesting there, there has to be um the impetus the impetus for protest and civil disobedience can't always be a clear cut as case as george floyd's was so are you advocating for taking action sooner what, what, what I'm saying is the types of the types of discussion, you know, discussing structural issues deep. Oh, they can't be rooted in a singular event. Well, it, it can be, it can be, and it should be, but it should, it, it shouldn't only be limited to that. We I can't, uh, I mean, think about what, ha what would happen if, if George Floyd didn't happen, if we, if he didn't have that, it's clear of an image. Yeah. Would people, been, would people have been convinced to go out and protest? And what as many people have been have had their minds open to seeing how grave this issue is of police brutality without that clear image. And I think that's that's the advantage and the curse of social media is it allows it allows those powerful images to be shared instantly, but it also always gives predominance to those images. To to the and, and I mean for every time that a George Floyd incident happens there's a thousand other incidents that don't rise to prominence yeah yes and and so we have more sympathy for the incidents we don't see i think when, when you're having those deep in-person conversations it mm. it's almost like social media it, it triggers a different part of i mean it literally does trigger a different part of your mind where you're not thinking um well the the, the what becomes predominant is the now and, and which is important in the image of now but I'm, I'm wondering will people also have will maintain the conscience to think about issues that are much less visible. There was um, an article I read that um, was saying that this pandemic um, from someone in, the, uh, I forgot the author's name, is uh, University of Belgrano. And they argued that you're, you're gonna have a tipping point here where either people are gonna be so, so quick to want to reopen the economy, which at this point, in some areas, the economy should move towards reopening in a safe way. I, I, think, I think people need to have, um, I think people need to you know, have their livelihoods. But if on the biggest public health threat of the century, climate change, and in this rush to reopen the economy will, um, well, I mean, you see it in the U.S. with, I think, like uh, regulations against coal, coal power plants being removed. It's sort of like, okay, just get everything done to, to reopen the economy, and like we're not thinking about what's going to happen in the future anymore. That's all we have for you today, folks. Thanks for listening to our first very rough podcast, and they only get better from here. Peace.